We're thankful to be here gathered together um, to look at spiritual gifts. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and give us understanding, help us to understand um, in particular this gift of evangelism, and uh, apply it to our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this is going to be awkward because I just remembered. Hey, Bailey, can you run into my office really quick and grab my bag? It's got my clicker in it. That's going to be very important for this lesson. Um, I don't want to be hopping over and and doing this. All right, well, um, we are in week eight in our series on spiritual gifts. And uh, if you remember back... uh, in our first couple of weeks, it's probably you got you to get the cobwebs out, okay? First couple of weeks, all the way back to the beginning of the semester, we did like an overview of the spiritual gifts. You guys remember that? All right. Well, a little pop quiz here, okay? What are spiritual gifts? Well, say it loud. Okay, a God-given ability. For the edification of the church, great, done, let's go home, okay? Now, yeah, that's, it's an ability, it's, just, it's a God-given ability that he's provided for us at conversion to, to serve the church. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what a gift is, and another question, do we all have at least one? You sure? That didn't sound very confident. Do we all have at least one? Yes, we all do. That's, it comes with our, our salvation, our gift, our, our, our conversion package, so to speak. So why are these gifts given? What's the purpose? For the building up of the church. Yeah, we said that a minute ago. What does that mean? Somebody flesh that out a little bit more. You're the man. Thank you. What's that? Yeah, right. So there's the maturing side of that. So as we use our gifts, right, we, we, we help believers mature, and they become more and more like Christ. What has to happen before they mature? They have to be saved, right. They have to come to Christ and know Him. So the building up of the church, the building up of this new temple, involves both evangelism and edification, if you want to say it that way. And so the gifts are used... In those dynamics, and we're going to see especially that first part um, today. So, another question: Are these gifts hang hang with me? Static or dynamic? This is a little bit bit a bit of a wrinkle here. Think of what do you mean by static or dynamic? Why would you say dynamic? Somebody said dynamic. Why? Okay. So, in that standpoint, I see where you're thinking. Right, that's, that's, they, some have ceased, correct, but that's not exactly what I was thinking. The ongoing gifts, are the ongoing gifts, the ones that we have today, static or dynamic? Meaning, do they always stay the same? Like if you just you get them and they're static, you never, they never grow or diminish. Or are they dynamic? They're dynamic. Why? Because you can grow in your use of them and, negatively, you can atrophy, right? Like if you don't use them, you need to fan into flame the gift. We don't want the gifts to, to begin to atrophy or grow stale. All right? Yes. So, just a quick quick overview here. And then we jumped in. That was the first week. You know, there's a lot more we said. But then we jumped into looking at the individual gifts as they appear in Scripture. Now, 
we'll keep with the pop quiz here. There are four lists of gifts in the New Testament, or longer lists. There are four longer lists of gifts in the New Testament. Who can name them, or at least name one of them? Where are they at? Okay, Romans 12 is one list. 1 Corinthians 12, so that's easy to remember. If you can remember Romans and 1 Corinthians, just remember 12, okay? 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, where else? Ephesians 4, yep. And it really was a trick, because there's two lists in 1 Corinthians 12. <laughs> but if you, want a, if you want a fourth bonus, you've got 1 Peter 4 as well. So you can remember Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4 is the bonus because he just gives two, two sets of gifts, two categories, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. So for, um, for our purposes, though, we chose to organize them or to categorize them into what we've called the foundational gifts and the ongoing gifts. All right, you ready for this? Oh, that was anticlimactic. Yes, charts. Make sure this works. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Cooking with, cooking with gas now. All right. I can send you this if you want it, but this is a, a chart that I've kind of systematized the gifts around. You can see on the left side the foundational gifts here and then the ongoing gifts here. And so we started up here with looking at apostleship and prophecy, and you can see I kind of put them all in the same line if they were similar and then tongues, and then interpretation of tongues. So that was kind of, we talked about all that. We talked about miracles, healing, utterance of wisdom and knowledge. And then you'll notice here, I've got discernment and faith with a star beside of them. But they're technically in the ongoing category. Because you remember why? They continue in a modified form, right. That's, that was at least the best sense I could make of the data. Because discernment is associated with prophecy and and interpreting prophecy basically, not interpreting it, but discerning whether or not the prophecy is given from God because it aligns with the doctrine of the apostles. And then faith here was associated with miracles and healings and those kinds of things. Um, But they weren't exclusively associated with each of those. Faith is simply just not saving faith, but just faith that trusts God that God's going to do things and take steps, you know, trust God for big things essentially. And then discernment also can apply beyond just evaluating prophecies to uh, just discernment in general because there's all kinds of false teaching going on today. So they're kind of a, they were kind of a bridge from the foundational to the ongoing. And now today I want to talk about the... Uh, oh, just by the way, why do we call them foundational gifts? Does anybody remember? Oh, wow. He's smart. Builds a foundation, right. Where are we drawing that from, that language? Ephesians 2.20, that's right. So, in this text implies there are some gifts, he's, he, he draws out the, the prophets, or the apostles and the prophets, that are foundational. They lay a foundation for the church, the new covenant people of God, with Christ as the cornerstone. You see that there. And we're built on, in particular, the revelatory foundation. He goes on to talk about that in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Meaning, they, they've received, these apostles and prophets have received the revelation of the new covenant about Jesus and the significance of what he's accomplished. 
And their task was to preach this revelation. It was to record this revelation as they planted churches and established leadership structures within those churches. So these apostles and prophets laid the foundation. Their healings and their miracles, they were often called signs and wonders. They pointed to these these apostles, authenticating them as the foundational apostles. We saw those gifts had a particular purpose, and it was to to what we're saying here, to lay this foundation, to start this church and, and get it off on the right footing. So those gifts are no longer necessary since the foundation has been laid and we have the scriptures, and now we're building upon that foundation. There's an active building up of the body of Christ that happens as we're all using our gifts. We're building the temple, the new covenant temple, the eschatological temple, if you will, and we're using our gifts to do it. So today we're going to keep moving down our list and we're going to look at evangelism. That's where we're at now. We're going to just keep, keep on moving down for the rest of the semester and we'll look at evangelists this morning and the gift of evangelism. So this, there's, this place, this is only found, as you can see on the chart, it's only found in one place, and that's Ephesians 4. So if you want, you can turn there, but I've got it on the screen here for you. It's found in Ephesians 4, and this is the only place that evangelists are described as a gift. It says, and he gave, that's Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So here we see that the evangelists are part of a grouping of gifts, particularly word-based gifts, that Christ has given to His church. We've already talked about the apostles and prophets, and we saw how they're foundational from chapter 2. But now he goes on. It's not just the apostles and prophets, but there's other people, evangelists, and another category, shepherds and teachers. So that's just, there are two categories there, evangelists and the shepherds and teachers. I know it looks like three words there, but in the grammar is only two categories. Evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And we'll talk about the distinctions maybe next week when we talk about those shepherds and teachers. So, this is the only place it's described as a gift. And I'm, I'm calling it, there's the, the gift of evangelists, and I'm saying the gift, kind of by extension, the gift of evangelism. All right, now, when we come to try to understand this gift, there's not a lot of data in the New Testament on this. We've talked about this at different points, you know, when we've done our exposition of Ephesians and and other things. But today, we're just kind of zero in on what we know, and I think we can learn a lot about this gift from the data that we have in the New Testament, even though there's not a whole lot out there on it, okay? So, first question, we're going to ask some questions this morning and try to answer those. The first question is, what do we learn about this gift in the New Testament? What do we learn about this gift in the New Testament? And just as a kind of a forewarning, this will probably take uh, probably a little bit more time, this number, this first question, uh, than the rest of the, the questions here. What do we learn about this gift in the New Testament? Well, outside of the statement in Ephesians 4.12, there's, like I said, there's not a lot of places this gift comes up explicitly, but there are a few, and they are insightful. And the first place that we find this gift uh, described is in the ministry of Philip and in his person. So we can say Philip is called an evangelist, really the only person that's called an evangelist in the Bible. He's called an evangelist, same term that we saw in Ephesians 4. And Philip, that's later in Acts, so Acts 21, 
But then earlier in Acts, he is consistently and effectively sharing the gospel, surprise, surprise, with unbelievers. Okay, so this, this term, probably should have said this earlier, this term evangelist, you probably hear it, it has the, the root evangel in it. That's the, the good news, the evangel, the gospel. So that it would imply, if we're just thinking a little bit, that the, an evangelist is going to have to do with something that has to do with the gospel, right? And so what we see in Acts 8, in the life of Philip, is this man who's consistently, effectively sharing the gospel with unbelievers. So let's just look real quick in Acts 21. Just read this to you. Acts 21.8. Here's where Philip is described. He says, On the next day we departed. This is Luke is traveling with Paul. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, talk about that, and stayed with him. So again, this is kind of an, uh, a, a later reflection on Philip. And here he's described, he's well known as the evangelist. And so, surprisingly, Philip is the only explicit example we have of somebody being labeled as an evangelist in the New Testament. Luke says it almost in passing here. <clears throat> and so that invites us to look into his life, at a minimum, into, into Philip's life, as a starting point for trying to understand what this gift entails. So when we do that, what do we learn? Back over in Acts chapter 8. Well, if we go even further back, we know that in Acts 6, Philip the evangelist is not Philip the apostle. So there is Philip an apostle, but this is Philip the evangelist. And the first time he shows up is in Acts 6, where he's appointed as an official servant of the Jerusalem church. So he's well known. The church chooses him for being godly full of the Holy Spirit, and he's, he's tasked with helping. He's one of the seven here that, that Luke draws out here, one of the, the original seven who were tasked to help the apostles serve tables or, or literally just kind of take care of the widows. So he was a servant, servant-hearted, and godly man. The next thing we learn is that Philip is one of the ones that are driven out of Jerusalem when persecution hits in chapter 8 of Acts. So you remember... The gospel spreading in Jerusalem through the, through the witness of the apostles. And then the temple leadership gets angry at Stephen. Stephen calls them out at the end of his sermon. They kill Stephen and a persecution unleashes on the church in Jerusalem. And then it spreads people out. And Philip is one of the ones that goes out of Jerusalem. And as he goes, he goes carrying the gospel with him. And so before Philip is ever described over here in Acts chapter 21 as an evangelist, He's described repeatedly as evangelizing, or your, your Bibles will typically call it preaching the gospel, or just preaching. Sometimes it's just translated as preaching. But it's this verb that, you know, to, to get the root word here, we could call it evangelizing or proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the verbal parallel to the evangelist. He's described this way three times in his ministry to the Samaritans. And then after that, the Spirit sends him to a eunuch, and he evangelizes him. He's described again in that way. And finally, we're told that Philip travels up the coastline, evangelizing all the towns until he came to Caesarea. It's all in chapter 8. 
So then later in this passage in Acts 21, when he's called an evangelist, it makes sense, right? Like, okay, he's clearly the one that's been doing this. And so we could say an evangelist is one who consistently and effectively shares the gospel with unbelievers. So he's consistent in it. And then there's fruit, right? There's an effectiveness. Samaritans were converted. Eunuch was converted. Um, We're assuming, we're not told this, but we're assuming people were converted in his ministries. He's working up that coastline. So it's it's one who is consistently and effectively sharing the gospel with unbelievers. And that's a good starting point. All right, now, now, the next time this gift shows up, it shows up implicitly in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, although Paul is never called an evangelist, Paul repeatedly evangelizes. Same verb that Philip, it was described, describes Philip. And what we learn from Paul is that his, this evangelism has the goal of establishing churches. You don't see that super clearly in Philip's ministry. I think it's implicit, but it gets filled out a little bit more with Paul. But first, we need to establish that Paul is actually a model for evangelists. Because he's never called one. But, like I said, the verb is used seven times to describe what Paul is doing in Acts. And that is the most of any person in Acts. For perspective, I want you to notice a trend. This verb, preaching the gospel or evangelizing in Acts, notice how often it's used of Paul. Next up, we might guess, is the evangelist, Philip. And then outside of those two usages, it's only used two other times to describe people. It's used one other time in a a sermon, but in terms of describing what people are doing, it's used once of the 12, so the original 12 back in Jerusalem in Acts 5, one time of their ministry, and it's used one time of these unnamed disciples who carried the gospel to Antioch. Outside of those two usages, it's used overwhelmingly of Philip, the evangelist, and then even more so of Paul. So what's the point? More than any other person in Acts, Paul the Apostle is described as evangelizing, even more than the named evangelist Philip. So then why isn't he called an evangelist? Well, because he's already an apostle. And I think that the work of an evangelist is embedded in the work of an apostle. Does that make sense? So if an apostle is like a big circle with a lot of activities in it, like writing scripture and doing other things, one activity of that is evangelism, is the work of an evangelist. So he's not called an evangelist because he's, that's already assumed in the work of an apostle, one who is sent out as a delegate of the Lord Jesus. So it's pretty clear that Paul's ministry... And the extensive details that were given in Acts should serve as a template, not just of an apostle, that's true, but also as an, of an evangelist. Does that make sense? Paul's life should serve as a template, in addition to Philip's life, as a template of evangelism. And when we add Paul's example to Philip's, what we see is that the end goal of the evangelist is the establishment of healthy churches. Healthy churches. Paul's clear mission is not just to make disciples or preach for decisions like at a crusade. 
But his goal is the actual establishment of healthy churches. Now, this is very evident throughout Acts, but I'm just going to point you to one specific place here in Acts 14. In Acts 14. And what you see here is I'm going to draw out a number of a number of things about Paul's ministry method. Acts 14, you can kind of star that. I think Luke gives us some extensive details about this ministry journey and what Paul does because he's showing us his typical practice as a sort of template for this evangelistic church planting work. And here at the end, he sort of summarizes it. Okay, So he's been preaching in these different cities. And it begins with preaching the gospel, we could say, or sharing the gospel to make disciples. So you can see it here, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. So there it is. The initial goal of evangelism is they've got to proclaim it, proclaim the message of the gospel to see disciples come to faith in Jesus. So you see, he says when they did that, then his work as an evangelist wasn't over, though. He went back to churches he had already planted just weeks earlier. So they're on this circuit to plant churches. They stop at Derby and Lystra, and then they go backwards to visit all the churches that they had just planted. And notice what they're doing. They're strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So we could just say that another activity of the evangelist is strengthening those disciples that have come to faith in Christ in the church. Right. So he's going to go back. And he models for them. We see this in Paul's life. He's a model for them. He models how to endure suffering. He just he draws that out here. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul's really eager as an evangelist to tell them about suffering because it's coming. And he's modeling that for them. He's modeling bold evangelism. He's teaching. He's encouraging. So it's not just making converts and then leaving them on their own to find, hopefully find some church or something like that. And not only does he come back through strengthening disciples, but he also does something else. He's establishing elders. He's establishing a leadership structure within those new congregations. So he said to when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the importance here is that Paul understands as an evangelist He's got, to keep, he's got to stay on the move. He's got to keep going and continue planting churches, continue bringing the gospel to new places with new people. And so there has to be some ongoing leadership structure in the church to carry on the work of shepherding so that the church can grow up to full maturity. And in Paul's mind, that's happening through these elders. That make sense? Makes pretty pretty clear. Okay? Now, the last place that this word evangelist shows up is in Paul's last letter to his successor, Timothy. In his very last exhortation to Timothy, Paul tells him to do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy 4.5. And given everything that we've seen in Acts and Paul's example, this would mean then continuing to establish churches. Do the work of an evangelist, which would mean then continuing to establish churches. Give you a second to write that down. (coughs) 
So look with me over in uh, 2 Timothy. We'll come back to that if you didn't, didn't catch it. Timothy's told to do the work of an evangelist, which means continuing to establish churches. Here's the, here's the text on this. He says, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So here, at the end of Paul's life, he calls on Timothy to always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And we sometimes read this as Paul reminding Timothy to make sure that he's still evangelizing the lost as a busy pastor. Make sense? Sometimes that's how this, this text gets understood. Like, hey, I know you're busy in ministry, but don't forget about evangelizing the lost amidst all your busy pastoral duties. I do not think that's what Paul is saying. For one, Timothy is not a pastor, per se. Okay? He, he, does past, he has a pastoral function. He's going and he's establishing elders. He's doing these things. Who, what is Timothy? Timothy is an extension of Paul. He's Paul's delegate. He's Paul's assistant. Like we've seen that in Philippians, right? So Paul's like saying, hey, Timothy, you go here. Hey, Timothy, come back here and you go there. He is representing Paul, and he's not, a fi- he's not fixed in one place as its long-term local pastor. And Paul deploys him where he needs him as an extension of his ministry, in establishing churches. And then also... It's important to know that this isn't just some kind of add-on exhortation here at the, at the very end. It's actually the climax of the letter. It's kind of the final exhortation that Paul, before he dies, gives to his successor. And so what's ringing in Timothy's ears? Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. So that means the work of an evangelist was central to Timothy fulfilling his ministry as Paul's successor. Paul is calling on Timothy here to keep Paul's work going, not as an apostle, but as an evangelist. Keep planting and establishing churches, Timothy. That's your mission. Fulfill it. So what do we learn in this example? We learn that the missionary aspect of Paul in his apostleship carries on after him to a second generation and it's framed up in terms of the work of an evangelist. Evangelistic gifts continue into the future for the multiplication of new disciples and the planting of new churches. All right? But you might be wondering, do we have any examples of evangelism happening at the local level? Like beyond this like church planting idea. Do we have any examples of this gift of evangelism being used of an established church already? And I think we do. And it's from our study of Philippians. Here's what we learned. Evangelism is expected of the church, and yet is pioneered by gifted individuals. Evangelism is expected of the church corporately, but it's pioneered by gifted individuals. Now, what's funny about this is I'm actually preaching this very next text on Thursday, um, Ephesians, or, uh, Philippians 4. <laughs> So I love how the Lord times these things up. But if we take a step back, we'll use Philippians as our case study here on this this topic. I won't spend long on it because we've been in there all semester, but it's clear that we're to work together for the goal of seeing people come to Christ here in Lynchburg 
and even have new churches planted outside of TBC. And this is Paul's clear expectation for the church in Philippi. So we'll look at the responsibility of the church in evangelism and we'll look at a few texts. See this in in chapter 1. Paul wants him to stand firm. He says that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, here it is, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Meaning the faith is produced by gospel proclamation. And, he says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So those that are opposing gospel progress in your midst, I want you to be scared of them. But I want you to stand in unity together as a church, contending for the faith of the gospel. And I think that has a direct implication for evangelism. The faith that is produced by the gospel. And then again, later in chapter 2, he says, Among whom you shine as lights in the world. So he doesn't want us to grumble, right? Because he wants us to shine as lights in the world. And then holding forth the word of life. Again, holding forth like a, like a cup of water to a, to a runner, you know, a sprinter. You're holding forth the gospel in the midst of a crooked generation. That's the role. That's, he's, these, these are commands given to the corporate assembly, the entire church of Philippi. So we can say it's the responsibility of the entire church. And it's expected. But that doesn't mean that we're all going to be on the front lines. Even locally. Right? It doesn't mean we're all going to be on the front lines even locally. So you say, you say where do you see that? We can see that this is, this is gifted individuals are kind of out in front. They're pioneering this gospel work even in Philippi. And it's kind of a, we're going to see this in kind of a backdoor way here. There's these two women that are at odds with each other. And Paul is really encouraging, he's encouraging a third party to come in and say, hey, get these people to reconcile. Because the implication is they're focused on fighting and they're not sharing the gospel like they did in the beginning. So look, look here at this text. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I asked you also, true companion, there's a third party, help these women. These women, by the way, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with another dude, with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers. So Paul had a team when he came to Philippi, Timothy, um, Barnabas. That's the rest of my fellow workers. And he groups these two women, Yodi and Syntyche, and Clement, in this group alongside of him and his workers. That's very interesting. So although we don't have this title of evangelism or evangelist given to these ladies or of Clement, we see them clearly associated with Paul's own workers who are doing the work of evangelism. And he says, when we came here, we we share the gospel. People came to faith in Christ. And out of that group, there was these few women, these two women and Clement. And they came right alongside us in gospel ministry right here in Philippi. And they were on the front lines pioneering the work of evangelism in the town. The whole church wasn't out doing that. Three people, at least, that we know of. So even right here, we see that a few with the gift will lead the charge of evangelism even locally. They will be our example, and they will motivate us in boldness in our spheres of influence. They'll likely be much more effective and fruitful, precisely because 
Not because they're spiritual, or more spiritual than you, but because they're gifted. They'll be very eager to get out there and have conversations. And they seem to be able to take a conversation toward the gospel quickly and winsomely. Now notice the implication off of this. Not everyone has the gift of evangelism. Right? Not everyone has this gift. But, we are all to be involved in evangelism in one way or another. Meaning we're responsible as a church. So, think through this. The Philippians did this, even though they weren't all, they weren't all the front lines people. You think of Lydia from Acts. What did Lydia do? Probably had the gift of giving. She opened her home. She gave her home to the, the missionaries, Paul and, and Barnabas and the team, to stay there from day one. Hospitality. She fed them food. They used her home. The home became the church building <laughs> where the, the, the group that the new disciples would gather in. So it was a home base for the mission endeavor. So there's hospitality going on and the gift of giving. You got the jailer who gets converted and dresses Paul's wounds. Right? So gifts of, of helps coming alongside Paul. What, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here to all come together as a corporate assembly to, to get the gospel out in Philippi. We'll talk more about that in a minute. All right? So I just want to show you, we go back to it here, that it starts kind of with Philip. That's our kind of broad template. Then it gets filled out and fleshed out with Paul in his life in Acts, specifically in Acts 14. And then we find that it passes on to Timothy in this church planting kind of specialist work of an evangelist. And then we see that evangelism is also expected of the church and even at the local level there's going to be some gifted individuals that are gifted by the Lord, part of the fellow workers here in gospel ministry that are going to be out in front. All right. Does that make sense? That's about all we've got on it. Now, next question. How do I know if I have this gift? These will go a lot quicker. How do I know if I have the gift of evangelism? Well, it probably won't be rocket science because there will be a passion for it and a joy in it. Okay? There will be a passion for it and a joy in it. You're going to be fired up to evangelize. And you're going to be rejoicing when you do evangelize. And that's really the first sign. You're working in an area that the Spirit has gifted you. He's wired you for this. It doesn't mean that you won't be nervous or scared. Why? Because we all face the fear of man. and We all have to slay the fear of man, no matter what gifts we have. So you still will be nervous and scared at times, but you find yourself looking for opportunities. You find yourself burdened by so many who don't know. You're eager to get around unbelievers for a chance to share the gospel. It's regularly on your mind. It's regularly in your prayers. You enjoy getting into conversations about the gospel. You pray for open doors. Those are some of the initial indicators of this gift. Did you know what the greatest one is? Fruitfulness. The greatest indicator is actually real fruit in evangelism. The Lord grants success to your labors. He brings new life to others as you share the gospel. And we're not talking about people you've convinced to give lip service to Christ and then you can't find him the next Sunday. That's not what we saw in Acts 14. Paul's 
making disciples. The fruit that we're looking for is the fruit of regeneration, the fruit of new birth, the fruit of true conversion that over time bears the fruit of a life of discipleship and following Christ. And that is the telltale sign of this gift. Passion, enjoy in it, and then also fruitfulness as you do it. So let's ask another question, though. What if I don't have this gift? How should you think through this if you don't, if you don't have the gift? Well, you're not off the hook completely. Smiley face. <laughs> because we're all called to proclaim the excellencies of the one who saved us. 1 Peter 1. We're all called to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. 1 Peter 3. We're all called to pray for those who persecute us. Matthew 5. And so we're all called to do battle with the fear of man and to be prepared to confess Jesus before men. So we're not off the hook. We can't just say, I'm not gifted, so therefore I'm not going to be concerned to see unbelievers come to faith in Christ. Or I'm not going to try to capitalize on the the relationships I have around me. And yet, you should not be discouraged. You should not be discouraged if you're not as gifted evangelistically like someone else is. You shouldn't be discouraged if you don't have this particular gifting. And that's because you've been gifted in a different area that is equally important to the conversion and the maturation of the saints. You tracking with me? You're a different body part that when you play your part, you're going to help the corporate assembly evangelize, and mature the saints. So if you're not gifted in speaking boldly and winsomely in evangelistic contexts, where are you gifted? That's the question. Are you using those gifts for the advance of the mission? So I said here, use the gifts you do have for the sake of the mission. So again, I just gave you some examples earlier, but I'll flesh those out a little bit. Think about if Lydia had not opened her home. Then it would definitely be a lot more challenging for the mission. Paul would have had to find somewhere to stay, probably had to rent someplace, spend extra money, which means he would have had to work longer, which means he would have less opportunity with people to share the gospel. He had to cook food, which again gives you less time. Lydia's providing all that for him, which makes his time in Philippi much more efficient. The jailer who dressed Paul's wounds. If he doesn't use his gift of helps, then Paul's wounds might get infected, he would get sick, and then the mission halts. And then think about even in the, what we saw about the Philippian leader who's called as a, as a reconciler of these two women. So with the gift of exhortation, we might say, if this man is not using his gift, then at least these two missional women are sidetracked by internal conflict and they're not using their gifts of front lines evangelism. So again, it's very important that all these things come together. So what if I don't have a gift? Short answer, that's all right. The Lord didn't make a mistake. Use your gift for the sake of the mission, okay? While still seeking to speak truth to, to those that are around you in evangelism. All right, number four. What should I be aware of if I have this gift? And 
I'm bringing this out because this, this happens. I just want to, if you have this gift of evangelism, there's some pitfalls here. There's some limitations, uh, dangers, I should say, that kind of come with the gift because of our fallen nature. And so the first one would be just wrong expectations. So you expect others to be as evangelistic as you are. You know? Like, what are all these lazy Christians doing in the church who are not evangelizing like me? And you assume that their lack of fruitfulness is due to a lack of faithfulness. Which could be. I mean, we could all use a shot of like, not fearing man, and opening our mouths for the sake of Christ, couldn't we? So, yes, don't want to let others off the hook too easily. But it, so it may be a sign of faithlessness, or a, a, it may be a sign of, of being unfaithful, but it may not be either. It could be just a matter of gifting, and often is. Because people who are not gifted in evangelism are usually discouraged, right? All right, another thing, impatience. Sometimes those with the gift of evangelism are impatient with established ministries who seem slow to get behind some evangelistic effort. Or they seem slow to get behind a church planting endeavor or some initiative. But you've got to remember that no one wants to see the nations come to Christ more than Christ. And he's the one that's controlling how fast or how slow a church gets on board with a particular evangelistic idea. Tracking? And he works through his elders. And that's assuming, okay, all things being equal, that your idea as an evangelist is actually biblically sound, right? Because lots of times those with the gift of evangelism have a lot of youthful zeal. Not really been tested or tempered very much. Lots of times there's a tremendous amount of zeal to see others come to Christ, and that's great. But there's not a lot of thoughtfulness in terms of the method. And then sometimes there's not a lot of preparation in your character either. Like there was with Philip and Paul and Timothy. These were all tested and approved men before they were cut loose to go plant a church or lead a church-wide ministry. So zeal is good, is good. But let that zeal fuel you to take the opportunities you do have in evangelism that are all around you and then seek to further develop your character while you wait. All right? And lastly, there's often what comes with this gift is an imbalance in the Great Commission. Now, it feels like we're picking on the evangelist here. We're going to pick on the teachers next week, okay? Because there's an imbalance that goes the other way there, too. But imbalance in in the Great Commission. Sometimes those gifted in evangelism can reduce the Great Commission to evangelism only. And I'm not talking about easy believism. I'm talking about just like seeing people come to faith in Jesus legitimately, which is step one of two steps of the Great Commission. They may be tempted to neglect the maturational element of the Great Commission, meaning the, the teaching of the disciples to obey all that Christ has commanded. We typically think of that as pastoral work. Okay, we'll talk about that next time. But if you remember, the evangelists we looked at, like Paul and Timothy, they were extremely burdened to see the church not just get converted, but to become mature. Right? They established elders. They did a lot of things to, to set up that process. They worked not just to share the gospel, but to also strengthen churches 
So if you're gifted in evangelism, but this is not your wheelhouse, you're just kind of like, I want to kind of get, get them converted and move on. You've got to take the time to deepen some of these shepherding abilities in addition to your evangelistic ones, even if you're stronger in the evangelism side. Okay? Because the, the strengthening of the souls of the disciples is part of the evangelistic endeavor. All right, last question, I think. Yeah. How can I maximize this gift? These will be pretty obvious. How can I maximize it? So if I think I'm gifted here, what should I do? Let's say, learn all you can about good, God-centered evangelism. Learn everything you can. Like, pick the good books and talk to me before you just go find one in Liberty's Library. Okay? Pick the good books from solid, solid resources that are going to teach you about God-centered evangelism. J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the, the Sovereignty of God. Man, what a classic. That's key. Uh, Nine Marks has a little book called Evangelism. Uh, it's a red, red book. Uh, there's a, Max Stiles has a bunch of books on evangelism. These are, these are all really good resources that will help you get more of a theology and framework for evangelism. Learn about conversion, biblical conversion, what it means to go from death to life, and how you might find the signs of someone who's converted. That's also very important for doing evangelism. Okay, so learn all you can. My point is just learn all you can about evangelism and conversion and the church so that you know what you're aiming at. All right, then evangelize. That's kind of, these are all not like one, one step. It's not, these are not steps. These are all simultaneous, okay? Evangelize when the Lord gives you opportunities. Open your mouth and exercise your gift because the only way that you get better is by doing it. Put yourself in those situations, getting mocked at work. Uh, you know, saying something dumb, wishing that you would, could kind of take that thing back. All of that is how you learn and you practice this gift of evangelism. Next, think creatively about how you can get more opportunities and shadow others who are doing it well. So I said here, observe and imitate others who do it well. So I know that there are some even within our ministry here, even, even within Boundless, that do this often, regularly. Um, some are it's more planned, some it's more informal, like at work. But those, those people who are doing it, get yourself around them. Try to shadow those folks. You'll learn a lot just from watching, watching others do it and kind of coming alongside them and, and observing what they're doing. And then I would say look for ways to work with others who have different gifts than you. Okay? Look for ways to partner with other people who have different gifts than you do. Now, why would I say that? Well, because when we work together as a team, a lot more can, can be accomplished. You know, somebody might have the gift, gift of hospitality. You might have the zeal to, not gift of, gift of service or generosity or helps or whatever. They might be willing to open their home, so you might, you might get those two or three coworkers that you're working on and go have a meal at that person's home and be able to sit down together while they welcome them and just love on them and show them grace. And you're kind of getting after it. You're kind of like all right, asking the probing questions and doing all those other things. And the, the, the host is more like the balm and the love and the, those kinds of things. My point is just do it together and the gifts will enhance and sharpen each other's effectiveness. And then the last thing I would say is if you want to plan a church, if you want to kind of be on that front lines, Praise God, we're praying for that. 
then get training. Let us train you and send you to plant a church in a few years. You hear me? Years. It needs investment. And sometimes even more investment than you might think. You're going to be really zealous to get out there and go. People are going to hell. I get that. But it's very important that, like Paul and Timothy and Philip, you are trained, you are vetted, your character is in the right place. And you think, well, I'm just, I'm just planting churches. Yeah, you're just planting churches, but you're establishing the very framework for the church that's going to live on into, into its future. Does that make sense? So it's not, that they, it's not that you need less training than the normal pastor. And you could argue you need more training. Um, there's, there's cross-cultural stuff, linguistics. If you're going into a place that doesn't have the, the gospel that's ever been named, there's those kinds of things you've got we to gotta work with you on that side too. So there's, there's a lot of things that need, to be, that need to happen. Funding that needs to take place. We would want to help get behind that if the Lord's calling you to something like that. Or maybe you're not the front lines person, but you're still burdened. You think you have the gift of evangelism. So find a pastor teacher that we're going to send out to plant a church who also has some gifts of evangelism too, potentially, and be part of that kind of boots on the ground evangelism force, right? So you go and maybe you're a physician or maybe you're studying to be a social worker or whatever, and you're going to choose to move to somewhere like New Orleans, like we saw on Thursday night, to go be with Omri and his team to be boots on the ground help there. You're going to relocate with your job to be part of that mission or go out from a, from a, into a church plant that, Lord willing, in the next few years, we will, we will send a team out. So there really are a lot of options here. We don't have any more time for questions, but I was going to at least open it up. But man, there's always a lot to say. Any quick questions? Just as burning? Just going to have to land a plane. But we got, we got time for one or two. If I can be short. All right, no questions. Zach. That's a great question. So one of the things I think is going on there is apostles and prophets and then evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So he makes a clear grammatical distinction there between shepherds and teachers. Not distinction. A a linking of the shepherds and teachers into one group so that there's a neat four groups or four, four groups. And I think the first one, apostleship, parallels the evangelist. And the second, um, prophet parallels the pastor teacher. Now that that one's a little more hazy, but one piece of data that is interesting is when you go to Acts 13, I believe it is, Luke describes the people that are there, the leadership structure of that church, like the the long-term leadership structure, as the the prophets and teachers. So he links those two in Luke's mind. So they're somehow linked in the ongoing shepherding of of the congregation. Out of which then, Saul and, or Paul and Barnabas were called out and then launched as an apostolic team doing the work of evangelism. So they're not like mutually exclusive. There's a lot of overlap between these categories, obviously. Um, But I think that's probably what's going on there. Because you have the foundation in, in 220 of the apostles and prophets. And then I think probably the ongoing side of replication in evangelist shepherds, teachers. Yeah, good question. Uh, 
Uh, that was all anecdotal. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, gift list. No, I was just saying, that I think those are just, what you see sort of descriptively with, with Philip, like there's, there's fruitfulness in his ministry, right? Like there's conversions. There's conversions with Paul's ministry. Um, if God's gifted you in an area, he intends to produce fruit through you in that area. So if you're gifted as an evangelist, then you know there's going to be, at some level, some fruitfulness. I mean, it doesn't mean that, like, if, you're, if people are hating you and they're trying to kill you, you're doing something wrong. It doesn't, it's not gauging your faithfulness based on fruitfulness. But I think the fruitfulness reveals that you've got the gift. Am I answering the wrong question here? Oh, there we go. Yeah. TBD. As we move on in the gift list. Sorry, I totally misunderstood your question. You need a buzzer. Like, eh. He doesn't understand the question. Eh. All right. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about that later. Still figuring that out. Yeah, no, just kidding. Obviously teaching, some discernment, um, yeah, those are, probably the, those are probably the biggest ones. Yeah, most, most pronounced that I'm aware of. So others might have different. It's always kind of hard to assess as just what I do the most of, right? Like I, I do a lot of that. So yeah, I think some of that, I think there's, the Lord's given me a lot of evangelistic opportunities lately. So I'm kind of wondering, and there's some fruitfulness in that. So this kind of raised some other questions about church planting and, and some of those things. So, so we're still kind of t- determining that. Yeah, but good question. All right. Well, we'll wrap up, and uh, we'll keep, keep cranking. If you have questions, email me or talk to me.